0: Well, good morning. Today is uh, another church history installment. And today we're gonna talk about some developments in American religious life after the Civil War. We managed to get through the Civil War. And this picture I've got up uh, on the slide, um, this is a picture taken from a magazine uh, that was published in the late 1800s and it depicts a boat full of immigrants coming to, um, does anybody know the part of New York that they were headed towards? Ellis Island. Ellis Island, that's correct. And of course the Statue of Liberty is there shining as a beacon to the world. Um, and I don't know if you know what, there's, a, there's a, a, an inscription on the Statue of Liberty. That's, uh, that says, give me your tired, give, give me your poor, give me, you know, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free. So America is increasingly becoming a land that immigrants are attracted to. And we'll be talking a lot about the effects of immigration in the 19th century in America. So, as we know, the Civil War absolutely devastated the American South. Cities, railroads, shipping, and nearly half of Southern infrastructure was destroyed. And with the emancipation of the enslaved uh, blacks, the entire economy of the South had to be rebuilt. But having lost their enormous investment in slaves, white planters had minimal capital to pay freedmen workers to bring in crops. So you've got these vast plantations that need lots and lots of people to work them, but now there are no slaves. Now you have to pay people to uh, work on the plantations. And most poor whites and most blacks who were mostly poor ended up becoming sharecroppers. So a system of sharecropping was developed in the South in which landowners broke up large plantations and rented small lots to the freedmen and their families. Now, if you know anything at all about agriculture, it's a really tough way to make a living. And it was even harder for the South to try to rebuild using agriculture as a basis for rebuilding their economy. And uh, for a long time, after other parts of the United States had increased in prosperity, the South was still really poor for most people living there. Now, the main feature of the Southern economy had changed from an elite minority of landed gentry slaveholders into a tenant farming or sharecropping system. And of course, we know that political and social gains for freedmen remained elusive as Southern states pushed back against federal laws guaranteeing freedmen full citizenship and property rights. Shortly after the Civil War, many uh, Union Army generals and uh, in particular, uh, William Sherman, uh, General Sherman and other uh, uh, Union generals were pushing to have the federal government simply take the estates of the uh, plantation owners and divide them up and simply give the land two freed blacks. Um, if you've ever heard the term 40 acres and a mule, this was an idea that was pushed right after the Civil War to give land to blacks, but it was quickly um, voted down in Congress by Southern... Uh, many, many of the plantation owners had... They had lost a lot of property. They had lost a lot of wealth, but they still had political power. So in Washington, D.C., where federal laws made through Congress, um, they pushed back against this idea of simply giving land to blacks. Now, black churches rose to the challenge of providing support of different kinds to black communities, both rural and urban. The church became the focal point for the black community in the South. And northern churches, which had been founded by free blacks, such as AME and AME Zion, as well as those of predominantly white denominations, in particular Methodists, various Methodist groups, established missions in the South to minister to the newly freed, teaching them to read and write. For instance, Bishop Daniel Payne of the AME Church Returned to Charleston, South Carolina in April 1865 with nine missionaries. So, in other words, they're looking at the South, the devastated South, as it's almost the same as a foreign country, and we're gonna send missionaries out. He organized committees, associations, and teachers to reach freedmen throughout the countryside. In the first year after the war, the AME Church gained 50,000 congregants. By the end of the Reconstruction era, that was the period of time after the Civil War, uh, where there were laws in place to try to rebuild the South and restructure the society, which uh, wasn't very successful in the long run, unfortunately. But AME churches and AME Zion churches had more than 250,000 members, and CME. The CME church was originally uh, the Colored Methodist Episcopal Church. They later changed their name um, uh, away from Colored to Christian Methodist Episcopal Church. But they gained about 37,000 members uh, in this reconstruction era. So there was a lot of need, um, but it was an opportunity for the black church to really fill the gaps for black communities in the south black baptist churches well established before the civil war uh, continued to grow and added new congregations with the rapid growth of black baptist churches in the south in 1865 church officials organized a new baptist association the national baptist convention many baptist churches you know if you visit a baptist church you might think What denomination do they belong to? Baptists don't organize using the term denomination. They organize around conventions. So there's the Southern Baptist Convention. There's the National Baptist Convention. So the National Baptist Convention was the unification of three national black conventions organized in the 1880s and 90s. And it brought together the areas of mission education and overall cooperation the national baptist convention continues to be the largest black religious organization in the united states now remember we talked about pr- the primitive baptists and if you recall what we said about the primitive baptists they developed in the later part of the 19th century And they had an emphasis on a Calvinistic understanding of salvation. So instead of being Arminian in their approach to to the ideas of salvation and theology, as were many Baptists, uh, the primitive Baptists were more Calvinistic in their approach. And if you recall, when we were talking about them, um, they could be summed up with the saying, give us our Bible and leave us alone. we are the elect we're just going to be in our churches among ourselves we're not going to engage in missions and outreach to communities especially unsaved people Uh, you know we're just you know going to be our our own little group now um at at the same time as the primitive baptists were coming on the scene another group Uh, that had a very different approach were the missionary baptists and as their name implies they were very much in you know wanting to engage in missions outreaches uh, to the community and constructing their church along those lines and so the missionary baptist movement um, started in around the 1880s or shortly after the civil war And many blacks were attracted to this movement. Many freedmen felt the need to come together and worship and fulfill the Great Commission. And of course, their own communities had great needs to be uh, met. And so the former enslaved blacks created the Foreign Mission Baptist Convention of the United States in 1880, the American National Baptist Convention in 86, and the Baptist National Educational Convention in 1893. So there was this big push to institutionalize, um, not just at the local level within the church, but on a national basis. Um, Now again, most blacks were still living in the South. Um, the, the uh, The Great Migration would not occur until the 1940s when many blacks would leave the American South and settle throughout the rest of the country. So that was way in the future. Most blacks lived in the South. Um, They they met to have these organizations. They needed something more than the local church, as great as the local church is. They needed to band together uh, to meet their own needs, essentially. And as we mentioned earlier, uh, the National Baptist Convention was formed in 1895. And it was made up of these organizations. Uh, About 24 years later, a disagreement within within the convention led to a split in the National Baptist Convention of America, separated from the National Baptist Convention USA. And today, uh, there are many predominantly black missionary Baptist churches throughout the U.S., this, this uh, flavor of Baptist, I guess you could call it, continues well into the present day. Missionary Baptist churches place an emphasis on Christian evangelism and missions, encourage Christian education, seek social justice and community involvement, and publish and distribute Sunday school material and other Christian literature. And here is a picture of Mount Enon Missionary Baptist Church right here in Dayton, Ohio. And um, this is a quite large church, well-established. And not all missionary Baptist churches uh, have this impressive looking of a building, but many of them do. Many of them have been in place for, you know, decades, and um, they have... um, a great deal of influence in the community, and not just within the black community today, but in the larger community overall. Missionary Baptists embrace their history and maintain a strong connection to the needs in their surrounding communities. As conventions, again, not denominations, missionary Baptist groups do not have administrative or doctrinal control over their member churches such matters are left up to each local church. So each local church has a lot of autonomy, um, but again, the convention provides them with a greater basis of support. Now, also, beginning in the post-war period, there arose new churches among groups that were impacted by the growing holiness movement. And if you recall, we've talked about the holiness movement, this idea that you can have uh, an experience uh, where it 's entire sanctification, according to some people, in other words, where you can come to a point where you do not, as John Wesley would have put it, uh, engage in voluntary sin, you might sin accidentally or not realizing you are sinning, that might still happen you you know you 're not perfect in the sense that God is perfect in that, of course he never sins, but you can arrive at a place of sanctification in your christian life where you are just not going to choose sin anymore Um, so this idea of entire sanctification and the holiness movement um, affected lots of different groups and because in america there is no state-sponsored church there's no organization or governmental uh, authority that's going to say to you, you know, if you want to preach the gospel, you can do so freely. You don't have to have any education. You don't have to have much knowledge of the Bible. (laughs) You can just start doing it. There's nothing that's going to prevent you from doing that. There's nothing that's going to prevent anyone from starting whole new churches or religious movements or anything. You know, so it's, you know, things are really wide open in the United States for people who want to express their religious faith, however they believe it to be, in any way they like. And so what began to happen was that a lot of people left, you know, again, there were a lot of Baptists, there were a lot of Methodists, uh, there were other evangelical groups, but um, a lot of times people would split off leave their churches and decide to start a new movement now one of the new movements that started and you may have heard of this um, this denomination still exists it's called the church of god of anderson indiana and the reason why we have to append that city in indiana that's the headquarters for church of god anderson indiana is because there are other denominations that call themselves the church of god um, so you know it rapidly starts getting a little complicated um, so the church of god of anderson indiana began in about 1881 as a movement emphasizing the unity of god's people and holy living so the idea is we're going to leave our established churches and create this new denomination And one of the driving forces behind this group was a man by the name of Daniel Warner. And I wish I had a lot more to say about Daniel Warner, but there's not much there. He did not have a seminary education. As far as I can tell, he did not attend college. Um, but he and a group of people, uh, uh, probably he had natural, God-given leadership skills, and he attracted a group. And they decided they wanted to leave behind denominations, and you know, dispense with the creeds, and simply trust in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our overseer; He is our bishop, and the Bible is our statement of belief. Um, and You know that sounds awesome that sounds great um they later they later ran into problems because of course uh just just taking the bible you know different people have different points of view about what's in the bible different people interpret portions of the bible in different ways so if you have you know if you simply say the bible is our creed well what exactly do you mean by that what what exactly you know is that pointing us towards Um, anyway these people saw themselves as the forefront of a new movement to restore unity and holiness to the church they were very much influenced by the holiness movement and their aim was not to establish another denomination but to promote primary allegiance to Jesus Christ so as to transcend denominational loyalties Of course, eventually, they became a denomination. (laughs) So um, now, it should be noted the Church of God, Anderson, Indiana, was not influenced by Pentecostal practices. And again, today, this denomination continues to exist. If you walk into one of these churches, you will soon realize that they are not Pentecostals, they're not Charismatics, They're not that much open to the baptism in the Holy Spirit with all that that implies. However, they do emphasize holy living, plain dress, and you need to abstain from theater attendance, card playing, gambling, and use of alcohol and tobacco products. (laughs) Well, not not from their viewpoint. And their theology is primarily Wesleyan. Again, very much like the Methodists, and it's pietistic in its practices. So you abstain from evil by abstaining from these worldly things and you live a righteous and holy life. Now, another distinctive uh, of this denomination, this group, they did seek to, av- uh, to abolish racial divisions within the Christian church world. You have to remember, at many, in, in many parts of the US, Uh, Blacks were not welcome in white congregations. They were still being turned away. Blacks pretty much had to be in their own churches because they weren't widely welcome in most mainstream, primarily white churches. There was a lot of racism in the church, just to put it bluntly. But this group believed that interracial worship is a sign of the true church, and they truly sought to reach out to the black community And even today, whites and blacks minister regularly in this version of the Church of God, and people of all races are invited to uh, worship there, and they have no formal membership requirement. And here are two women pictured. um, These were early Church of God Anderson, Indiana missionaries. The Church of God, Anderson, Indiana provided women with more opportunities for ministry than many other evangelical Protestant groups. You know, if they're going to be multiracial and diverse, then why not let more, more ministry opportunities open up for women? Women could be pastors and evangelists. And today, if you go to a Church of God, Anderson, Indiana church, you, you might very well find that that church is pastored by a woman. Many married couples were both considered to be in the ministry. And today, Christian churches and parachurch organizations that accept women in ministry positions equal with men, they use the term egalitarian. We are egalitarian. We allow women in ministry positions and positions of leadership. Now, of course, there are other churches of God, Uh, Another prominent one that exists to this day is Church of God Cleveland, Tennessee. Unlike the Anderson, Indiana group, they are not only holiness, but they are Pentecostal as well. And this group was formed when a man by the name of R.G. Sperling, a missionary Baptist minister, and his father, Richard Sperling, an ordained elder, rejected some of the views of the Baptists in his area, as not being in accord with New Testament Christianity. Sperling also agreed with landmarkism. Remember, when we were talking about primitive Baptists, we also talked about the landmarkists. And um, landmarkism was big in Texas for a while. I don't know why Texas, but it was. Um, But uh, again, the landmarkists say, the only true church is a church that has been Baptist for generations and generations and in some cases going back to the time of christ so they assert that the baptist church has as they view it has always existed and there have been baptist churches from earliest times from apostolic times and only a church that is descended that way is you know is part of these churches that they believe date from the apostolic era those are the only true churches But this particular missionary Baptist believed that landmarkism was wrong. And he also, you know, the landmarkists, of course, as you would expect, would not, you know, they're pretty much, we're we're the true church, so we're the true people of God, so we're not going to associate with anybody else. In other words, if you're not one of us, you know, your Christianity might be suspect. um, And we're just not going to associate with you. But Sperling felt that there needed to be another reformation of the church that went beyond the Protestant Reformation. And, uh, you know, as we go through church history, you'll find that there are many Christians who believe that the Reformation didn't go far enough. (laughs) (laughs) Sperling believed that Christians should be united by love. And not by creeds which he believed were divisive if a practice or a belief was not contrary to the new testament believers should be able to practice or believe in the form that they chose by 1886 spurling and those who felt as he did found themselves disfellowshipped from their baptist churches now in 1896 three tennessee evangelists with links to and i just couldn't resist this name Benjamin H. Irwin's Fire-Baptized Holiness Church brought the message of entire sanctification to the Western North Carolina countryside when they held a revival in the Shearer Schoolhouse near Camp Creek in Cherokee County, North Carolina. So in this, if you can imagine a map of the United States between Tennessee and North Carolina, all in this kind of lateral belt, Church of God, uh, Cleveland, Tennessee folks were uh, just, you know, associating and and coming out from their standard Baptist churches and forming this new Church of God. During the revival, some participants, including children, spoke in tongues. When they experienced sanctification... (laughs) And of course, this was later understood to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit, as as spoken of in Acts 2. Now, of course, this created great excitement and controversy in the community, and leading Baptist and Methodist leaders soon denounced the revival. Several of the worshippers' homes, as well as a provisional meeting house, were burned by mobs opposing the new revival. Sperling and his group would go on to form a church that would become a Pentecostal denomination that later would be influenced by the Azusa Street Revival. And we will talk about the Azusa Street Revival. Now I wanna kind of switch gears here and talk about 19th century immigration into the United States and how this impacted, especially cities in the Eastern part of the United States. Now, of course, even today it is said the United States is a nation of immigrants. Very much true. While most immigrants in the colonial era were from the British Isles, France, and Germany, and most immigrants were Protestant Christians, increasing numbers of immigrants in the 19th century were from Southern and Eastern Europe, especially Italy. These immigrants were often Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox, and included people who were non-Christians, primarily Jews. The rate of immigration into the new nation was slow until 1840, when it suddenly expanded with Irish, English, and German, and other arrivals numbering in total over four million men, women, and children in the period 1840 to 1860. The Irish were especially discriminated against due to being Roman Catholic. Native, and I put that in quotes because we're not talking about Native American Indians, I am talking about white people who were maybe two or three generations removed from coming over on the boat, but who thought of themselves as Native Americans and who were overwhelmingly Protestant, were fearful of the Irish being more loyal to the Pope and not supporting the Republican form of government in the U.S. Anti-Catholic sentiment led to persecution of Catholics, mainly in the cities where most immigrants lived. Ironically, much opposition to Roman Catholics came from recent Protestant Irish immigrants and German Lutheran immigrants. And, And if you recall, I think it was in the last talk I gave, the city of Cincinnati had a lot of immigrants attracted to it because Cincinnati being on a river, you know, when when there weren't that many good roads, the main way you transported goods and people was on rivers. And so any town along a river was going to attract early settlement and it would attract, it would go on to attract a lot more people. And Cincinnati being on the mighty Ohio River, was a prominent destination for many immigrants. Um, If they didn't want to remain on the East Coast, they could take a a barge or riverboat and easily get to Cincinnati. And there were a lot of opportunities in Cincinnati, um, and uh, a lot of them ended up there. A lot of German immigrants came to Cincinnati, which is why Oktoberfest is such a big deal in the entire city of Cincinnati to this day. but you have to remember there were both Protestant Germans and Roman Catholic Germans, and they're all coming, you know, more or less to the same places all, through, all throughout Western Ohio. There are many towns, uh, small towns in Western Ohio settled by Germans who came up from Cincinnati, you know, they, they, they found passage down the Ohio to Cincinnati and then moved north. So all of the western half of Cincinnati, if you go through the little towns that still exist, strong German heritage. is Cincinnati uh, considered one of the places that the capital might be moved during that time as no... I d- have no idea, <laughs> I do not know. <laughs> um, that, yeah. As to whether Cincinnati might end up being the federal capital of the US, I have no idea. Now, in Charlestown, Massachusetts, an anti-Catholic mob attacked and burned down a Catholic convent in 1834. Fortunately, no one was injured. In the 1840s, small-scale riots between Roman Catholics and nativists, uh, that's what they became known as. They were nativists, in other words, the descendants of recent immigrants who who wanted to keep the new immigrants out, took place in several cities. In Philadelphia in 1844, a series of nativist assaults on Catholic churches and community centers resulted in the loss of lives on both sides. And there were real full-scale riots, and this is a uh, late 19th century engraving or print of one artist's conception of what was going on in uh, Philadelphia in May of 1844, uh, burning down a Roman Catholic church, and uh, the governor of the state had to call out the militia to put down the rioters. These people also, and this is getting a little off topic, but these people also Uh, created a political party they became known as the (laughs) know-nothings and they were they were strongly anti-immigrant and very much you know protest we are americans we are good white americans we are protestants and we advocate you know our points of view and they wanted to enact all kinds of legislation they didn't get a lot of traction In Louisville, Kentucky, Election Day rioters killed at least 22 people in attacks on German and Irish Catholics on Bloody Monday, August 6, 1855. In the tumultuous period leading up to the Civil War, race, ethnicity, immigration, and politics mixed with religion to create strife in many parts of the country. But the newly formed Republican Party needed immigrants to serve in the Union Army. You know, there's always, you know, for for every group that doesn't want the immigrants, there's usually another group that wants them for some reason. And political parties had marked ethnic and religious bases. Protestant immigrants from England, Ireland, Scotland, and Scandinavia favored the Republicans, while Irish Catholics, Germans, and others were usually Democratic. Catholics and Protestants kept their distance Intermarriage between Catholics and Protestants was uncommon and strongly discouraged by both Protestant ministers and Catholic priests. Mixed marriages, as they were called, were allowed in rare cases, though warned against repeatedly, and were uncommon. Rather, intermarriage was primarily with other ethnic groups who shared their religion. So Irish Catholics, for example, could intermarry with German Catholics or Poles, in the Midwest and Italians in the Northeast. While Catholic parishes were struggling to build parochial or religious schools, many Catholic churches, or children rather, attended public schools. The Protestant King James Version of the Bible was widely used in public schools. Remember, this is a whole nother time period Religion is taught in the public schools, but the presumption is everybody here is going to be a Protestant, we're going to use the King James Version of the Bible, and the assumption is, you know, we all kind of share the same religious faith, uh, and so we have it in our schools. But then Catholics start showing up. Catholics were forbidden by their church from reading or reciting from the King James Version. They had their own Bible. Many Irish children complained that Catholicism was openly mocked in the classroom. In New York City, the curriculum vividly portrayed Catholics and uh, specifically and especially the Irish as villainous. These are people you don't want to associate with. Conflicts over religion being taught in the public schools led the educational establishment to secularize public education removing religion and religious instruction entirely. Now, immigration of Jews from Germany steadily increased throughout the 19th century. Relations between Jews and Christians in the US was reasonably peaceful up until the 1870s when large groups of Jews from Eastern Europe and Russia began to arrive. They spoke Yiddish, a form of German, were quite poor, and concentrated in New York City, where they soon dominated the garment industry. And they remained very much a closed community for um, a long time. And this is a photograph taken in 1900 in New York City. And you can see, here's a crowded uh, street from a portion of the city inhabited mostly by immigrants, uh, probably a lot of Jews, probably a lot of people from Eastern Europe, possibly Russia, um, maybe even other parts of the world. Unlike the politically conservative earlier arrivals, many Jewish immigrants were politically radical and often socialist or even communist. Much of the anti-Semitism that emerged in the US resulted more from social, political, and economic differences between Christians and Jews than actual religious differences. What about Asian immigration? During this period of time, Asian immigration was subject to very strict regulations. Most Asian immigrants, regardless of their religious background, both Christian and non-Christian, were allowed to come to the US only for work and were restricted from settling permanently. You could come to work, but then you had to go back. It was, um, And most of this, Uh, As you would expect, most Asian immigration was coming over the Pacific and clustered primarily in California and the western part of the US. It would be quite some time before the laws were changed and Asian immigrants were allowed to come, same as any other immigrant. Now, along with immigration, we need to talk about westward expansion. Think back to you know your history class in high school, or junior high, or maybe even a little, you got a little bit of this in the sixth grade or something like that. Remember the Louisiana Purchase of 1803? A huge amount of land bought for a song, basically, <laughs> from the French. <laughs> uh, so this, this opened up a huge amount of land. Um, and for the next 100 years explorers and settlers would continue to move west so there was a big push you know people had big dreams especially many recent immigrants I've come to this great great country there's land to be had for next to nothing I can go and I can farm or I can hunt for gold or silver you know the sky's the limit Um, opportunities galore now much of what uh, became the southwestern U.S. had previously been s- settled by the Spanish and the French. For a long time, the Spanish pretty much owned <laughs> what today is Mexico and California and the we- the, much of the western states uh, along the Pacific coast. And of course, the Roman Catholic missionaries had established many mission settlements um so as far as the spanish and french and roman catholics were concerned it was kind of like what do you mean wide open we own this (laughs) we this has been ours for a long time um but they hadn't they hadn't established uh ongoing communities in a lot of places so there was still plenty of land to be had um and of course soldiers trappers and traders had had uh you know quite done a quite good job of exploiting the rich natural resources of this part of the continent and again much of the west was inhabited by native american tribes and in the southwest mexican nationals and especially texas you know there were there were people who thought of themselves as mexican living in what today is the united states and um, this of course would cause problems later on most of the area had been a part of New Spain and Mexico until the United States acquired territory through the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848 and the smaller Gadsden Purchase in 1854. Now, with the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo on February 2, 1848, the United States gained control of all of present-day California, Nevada, and Utah, as well as the majority of Arizona and parts of New Mexico and Colorado. And the rest of those states um, were acquired by the U.S. when they annexed the Republic of Texas. You know, if you saw the movie The Alamo, you saw that the Texans wanted to kick out Mexico. They didn't want to be part of Mexico. Actually, for a while, they just wanted to be their own country. Later, they become a part of the United States. And the Gadsden Purchase brought the parts of Arizona and New Mexico that were not part of the U.S. into the U.S., So really, by by the Civil War, the political outline on the map of the U.S. looks a lot like, of the continental states, looks a lot like it does today. Now, there was an idea that began to come about in this time period. And this is the idea of manifest destiny and westward expansion How many of you have heard the term manifest destiny? A few of you have, yep. So this is the idea that it is the manifest destiny of this great new nation to conquer the rest of this this part of the continent uh, of North America. And it was really kind of a, a cultural and somewhat religious belief in the 19th century that American settlers were destined to expand across North America. And if you're a Christian and you take seriously the dominion mandate, and and you're a Christian who wants to spread the gospel to the whole world, you know, what better than westward expansion across the continent? Ill-defined but keenly felt, manifest destiny was an expression of belief in the morality and value of expansionism that accompanied other popular ideas of the area era, including American exceptionalism and romantic nationalism. The idea that a nation could embody the best values of a culture and spread that abroad was really important. So it was kind of this romantic idea of America as a nation. And not only uh, is it a good nation, it's exceptional compared to all the other nations of the world. Many patriotic Americans believed that America embodied the divine destiny for a nation based upon values such as equality, liberty of conscience, and personal enfranchisement to establish on earth the moral dignity and salvation of man. And doesn't that sound grand? And doesn't that sound a little odd given slavery and other problems? Now, of course, not everybody bought into this way of thinking, but many did. Now, the idea of manifest destiny has a lot to do with Protestant Christianity and the the philosophical beliefs that emerged during the Enlightenment. So it isn't just Christianity driving these ideas. Um, A lot of these ideas also come from the Enlightenment. You know, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, you read those documents and you think this is wonderful. This, you know, this is the best thing ever. But how well is this fully realized and lived out in this nation? But for the people who embraced this idea of manifest destiny, the ideal America was almost a utopia. A place where the highest religious and philosophical ideas about the freedom and dignity of mankind could be realized. Now, it is true if you're, you know, if you're a settler and you've gone out west and you've established your homestead and you've started farming, as most of them did. Um, there's nobody else around. There's nobody really to tell you what to do, and um, you know, most most Western movies aren't, you know the topics in Western movies aren't very popular today. But if you watch the the Westerns that were made in Hollywood between, say, 1940 to 1960, you know, the idea is, it, that's continually embodied in these movies is, you know, the settler who goes out West, and maybe it's a small band of settlers who go out West. And what are they always trying to do? They're always trying to farm. There were a lot of Americans who believed that the West should, be reshaped into the image of the eastern United States and in the east pretty much everybody's a farmer but what they didn't realize was the ecology the climate the con you know just the general conditions of the western United States don't really lend themselves to agriculture as it's practiced in the east Um, and it later led to problems like the Dust Bowl in the 1930s uh, when pretty, pretty much the West was just a barren wasteland where people had tried to farm, but anyway, there's this great idea about America, and you know you can live out your dreams, uh, whatever they are. And this is a print uh, made by um, Courier and Ives, that was a company that made a lot of prints in the late 1800s. And you can't see it at the bottom because it's in really small uh, print. So I, I laid some text over it, but the, the phrase at the bottom underneath across the continent, so you've got a, a train pictured leaving a settled area, going out into some vast wilderness. And if you notice in the lower, uh, kind of in the lower right-hand side, there are two Native Americans on horseback looking at the iron horse, the railroad, and you know looking at basically what's taking place uh, what is happening from their point of view so westward the course of empire takes its way again very grand ideas three key themes the virtue of the american people and their institutions the mission to spread these institutions thereby redeeming and remaking Not just the United States, but the whole world in the image of the United States. The destiny under God to do this work. The origin of the first uh, theme, later known as American exceptionalism, was often traced to America's Puritan heritage, particularly John Winthrop's famous City Upon a Hill sermon, of 1630, in which he called for the establishment of a virtuous community that would be a shining example to the old world. And these ideas have made their way into the present day. In the 1980s, Ronald Reagan gave a speech talking about the shining city upon a hill that is America. So these ideas are still very much with us. President Woodrow Wilson continued the policy of interventionism in the Americas and attempted to redefine both Manifest Destiny and America's mission on a broader worldwide scale. So again, using the word mission, that makes, you know, that's got religious overtones. Wilson led the U.S. into World War I with the argument that the world must be made safe for democracy and the U.S. was going to do it. And this U.S. vision of itself as the leader of the free world would grow stronger in the 20th century after World War II, although rarely would it be described as manifest destiny as Wilson had done. Uh, I know we're really short on time, so I'm going to go through this fast. We are just beginning our deep dive into the fundamentalist modernist controversy. We're going to have a lot more to say about it. The roots of the controversy began as a result of the emergence of higher criticism in German Protestant theological circles. And you could think, well, that was in Germany, right? Well, it had a huge influence in the United States later. Higher criticism or the historical critical method could be applied to any ancient texts or literature. In biblical studies, higher criticism investigates the books of the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament, and compares them to any other texts written about the same time. One example is that modern biblical scholarship is attempted to understand the book of Revelation in its first century historical context by identifying its literary genre within Jewish and Christian apocalyptic literature. In regard to the gospels, higher criticism deals with the synoptic problem contrasting and comparing Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In some cases, such such as with several Pauline epistles, higher criticism either confirms or challenges the traditional or received understanding of authorship. Higher criticism understands the New Testament texts within a historical context. That is, they're not absolutely true, but they're writings that express a tradition. For a higher critic, the truth lies in the historical context of the writing, not within the text itself. (coughs) Excuse me. I'm going to have to stop. (laughs)